0: The fact that the U.S. military didn't know about these until recently is that an intelligence failure? Was that a military failure?
1: No, I, it's 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 how you use your radars. Uh, we typically are focused on things that are moving fast, and uh, and uh, it, so it's a bit more difficult to collect on slow moving objects
2: like
3: a balloon. And uh, and as they made adjustments, they we were able to see some of that. The secretary of defense giving an explanation for the string of unidentified objects over the northern United States. It comes as President Joe Biden may address today how his administration will deal with other objects in the future. Also happening this morning, we'll get our first look at pieces of the grand jury report investigating Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia And meanwhile, the former president's only challenger so far in 2024 kicks off her campaign with comments about her former boss and President Biden that are getting a lot of attention this morning. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early on this Thursday, February 16th. I'm Jonathan Lemire. Thanks for starting your day with us. President Joe Biden is expected to speak, possibly as soon as today, about his administration's decision to shoot down four flying objects this month. Amid growing calls from lawmakers to hear from the president on the situation, three sources familiar with the matter tell NBC News that White House aides have been discussing privately whether or not Biden should address the American people. Last weekend, the Pentagon shot down three unidentified flying objects in the U.S. and Canadian airspace, less than a week after bringing down a suspected Chinese spy balloon off the coast of South Carolina. In his speech, whenever it might be delivered, Biden will be expected to discuss a plan of action for dealing with similar events in the future. We, of course, will keep you posted. The Department of Justice, meanwhile, has expanded its investigation into President Biden's mishandling of classified documents by searching his alma mater, Two senior law enforcement officials familiar with the probe tell NBC News that FBI agents recently combed through papers at the University of Delaware. In 2012, then-Vice President Biden donated nearly 2,000 boxes of papers to the school's library from his time serving in the United States Senate. Those records are not available for public viewing and, according to the Associated Press, are not scheduled to be unsealed until Biden has been retired from public life for two years. That, of course— could still be a few years off. It's unclear if FBI agents seized any items in this latest search. It comes after classified documents, including some from his time in the Senate, were discovered inside an office previously used by Biden at a Washington think tank, as well as at his private home in Wilmington, Delaware. Another headline this morning, portions of the Fulton County grand jury report that investigated then-President Trump how he interfered in the 2020 election will be made public today. Only the introduction, conclusion and a section where jurors said they were worried that some witnesses lied under oath will be released. The majority of the report will remain private until the Fulton County District Attorney concludes her probe. Trump and his associates are being investigated for their actions after Georgia flipped blue for Joe Biden in 2020. There were several attempts to recapture the swing state, including, of course, the infamous phone call between Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where Trump asked him to, quote, find the necessary votes for him to win. He knew the precise number. Elsewhere, new numbers show the United States is on track to add nearly $19 trillion to its national debt over the next decade. That's $3 trillion more than previously expected. The New York Times reports the new forecast by the Congressional Budget Office project a $1.4 trillion gap this year between what the government spends and what it takes in from tax revenues. Over the following 10 years, deficits will average $2 trillion annually as tax receipts fail to keep pace with the rising costs of Social Security and Medicare benefits for retiring baby boomers. To put those numbers in context, the total amount of the debt will be held by the public will equal the total annual output of the U.S. economy in 2024, rising to 118% of the economy by 2023. The Budget Office, per the New York Times, said in a separate report that such a crisis could occur as soon as July and possibly even earlier if lawmakers do not agree to raise the $31.4 trillion limit, which the government technically hit last month. So this just raises the stakes on that debt ceiling fight expected between Republicans in the House and Democrats. President Biden gave some remarks on the economy yesterday in which he criticized House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the Republican Party for their actions on this very topic, the debt ceiling and the economy. Take a listen.
4: The truth of the matter is we made a lot of this progress with Republican help. Sometimes we we had to go alone, but a lot of the progress we made so far is because we worked together. Sadly, from what I'm hearing from a new leader of the House of Representatives and the new House of Representatives, they're suggesting this cooperation has come to an end. Yeah. Well, that'd be a big mistake for America. I will not negotiate whether or not we pay our debt. I will not allow this nation to default. Look, folks, let's be crystal clear about what's happening. If you add up the proposals of Republican friends, my Republican friends have offered just so far what they've offered. They've offered these now. It would add more than $3 trillion to the debt over 10 years. $3 trillion.
3: Let's turn now to the war in Europe, where Russia claims to have made gains in Ukraine's Luhansk region, saying its forces broke through multiple Ukrainian defensive lines in the area, with the progress forcing Ukrainian troops to pull back by about two miles. Now, Russia's claims have not been independently verified, and Ukrainian officials have not yet commented on this. Both sides have stalled in their respective positions for weeks now, with few territorial changes. Ukraine's defense minister said yesterday his nation's forces will still need, quote, a few months to be fully trained on the new batch of Western-supplied weapons. The United Kingdom's defense minister says they estimate that 97% of Russia's standing army is currently inside Ukraine. Joining us now, Senior Coalition's Advisor for Concerned Veterans for America, retired Master Sergeant Jason Beardsley. He is a decorated combat veteran and intelligence officer, and we are grateful that he is with us this morning. So uh, great to see you, uh, sir. The There's been some talk for a while now that Russia was preparing a massive uh, a new offensive, perhaps you know, when the weather warms some and it's easier to move troops and armor. But there's been growing indications, we heard this from the NATO Secretary General in recent days, that offensive, at least in its early stages, has already begun. We may be seeing that in the Luhansk region. What's your assessment right now of the current state of the fighting?
1: Yeah, I think your um, you know, intro was great. Obviously, uh Russia is uh coming up on a a presidential address. So Vladimir Putin's going to be addressing his people shortly, and he would like to package whatever he's got on the ground as a win. Uh but from the beginning of this um and I think General Milley really framed this well. Uh Russia's been losing this and uh they've been hammered on the ground. They've lost a lot of forces. Uh, you mentioned the defense minister of uh, Britain talked about 97 percent of the army being in Ukraine. In addition to that, he's talked about World War One-like casualties for Russia. This is why right right now he doesn't have a lot to uh, promote or celebrate. So they're going to sort of uh, use a little bit of propaganda speak to get the people whipped up and to suggest that Russia is actually on the on the offensive here. But uh, all, all signs indicate this is just more of a back-and-forth slog that you're going to see over the next however long this conflict uh, lasts. Yeah, both sides in this conflict
3: keeping an eye on next week, which will be the one-year mark of this war. As you mentioned, President Putin expected to address his nation there. We're going to hear from President Zelensky. And, of course, President Biden is off to Poland early next week, where he'll talk about the importance of the alliance staying together. So this next phase of the war does feel like a critical one. I've talked to some military officials, White House, uh, senior White House aides, who say, look, they're rushing this weaponry to the front, but we know tanks aren't going to get there. For for a while um, and that the Russians, there's some talk of another conscription effort. They may have more manpower to throw into the meat grinder. So how important do you think these next few weeks
1: will be to set a tone for a conflict that probably will rage for months or more? Uh, You know, you're, you're right. Uh, setting this tone right now is going to be critical. This stage is important. And again, you saw, uh, General Milley start to signal and indicate to the American people that fighting for a complete victory is a little bit idealistic. And right now what he's pointing to and the reason that he framed this as Russia is losing on the ground is to suggest that for those folks who want that victory, it's right in front of them. We've seen Russia at the moment they decided to roll over the borders of Ukraine and get their heavy tanks stuck in the mud and and consecutively get hammered day after day for a year straight, that's the loss for them. So Americans can feel good about that. And we've done a lot of um, uh, supply and support, but there's a time, you hear this from Secretary del Toro talking about depletion of U.S. forces, uh, Mark Milley warning against this and other signals coming from the military leadership that too much of this stretches the United States out and reduces our own readiness. So we really start uh, should be looking for what you and I talked about last time, which is that off ramp. And if if the Biden administration doesn't start putting pressure, uh, not just on Russia, but on Xi Jinping, you know, we just met recently with Iranian leaders. So what we don't want to do is force this up, as my friend Reed Smith says, the escalation ladder so that it causes more and more conflict. This could go on forever if we don't start pushing for that off ramp.
3: Yeah, It's a great point. The U.S., of course, has been very deferential to the Ukrainians about when they feel like they are ready to start talking settlement. No sign of that yet. And as you point out, it's been setback after setback for the Russian military. But there is no sign, per intelligence analysts, that Vladimir Putin is going to stop anytime soon. Retired Master Sergeant Jason Beardsley, we will be leaning on your expertise again soon. Thank you for joining us this morning. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, the latest from Ohio following that train derailment nearly two weeks ago. With residents voicing concern about harmful chemicals, we'll take a look at what officials are saying about safety tests now being performed. Plus, a dramatic day in court as the gunman in a racist mass shooting in a Buffalo grocery store last year gets life in prison after a confrontation in the courtroom. Those stories, and a check on the weather when we come right back.
5: Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The weekend.
0: We wanna get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening.
5: It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in.
0: Conversation, we begin, and that you continue all week long.
5: The weekend, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Residents of a
3: small town in eastern Ohio are demanding more answers, and many refuse to return to their homes. Now about two weeks after a train derailment sparked fears of a toxic disaster. Hazardous chemicals spilled from the train and were ignited in a controlled burn, sending a sickly plume of black smoke over the entire community. NBC News correspondent Ron Allen has the latest
2: outrage growing less than two weeks after that massive train derailment and the controlled burn of hazardous chemicals sent up a toxic plume of black smoke in East Palestine, Ohio.
6: It doesn't smell safe that I'm taking my things and I'm out of here.
2: Residents demanding answers, complaining of burning eyes, nausea, headaches, and a pungent odor, and reporting dead animals. Officials confirming 3,500 fish killed by the chemicals.
0: Don't tell me it's safe.
2: Something's going on if the fish are floating in the creek. State officials now suggest drinking bottled water after telling evacuated residents it was safe to return home. The governor, who approved that controlled burn of toxic chemicals to prevent an explosion, was asked if he'd return home if he lived near the crash site, where crews now work to remove soil and wreckage, possibly contaminated by chemicals like vinyl chloride, suspected of causing cancer.
6: I think that I would be drinking the bottled water um, and I would be continuing to, uh, um, to find out what the tests were showing as far as the air. Um, I would be alert and and concerned, but uh, I think I would probably be back in my house.
2: Officials saying constant tests and monitoring of the air and water show the environment is safe.
0: We understand Uh, some of the anxiety of the community. We're going to be here until
7: this problem is cleaned up.
0: I'm not believing those reassurances yet.
7: Why not?
2: I need proof. Janet Hill, a breast cancer survivor, says she has a constant cough and sore throat and worries about her firefighter son, who spent days working the crash site. I worry what's going to happen 5, 10, 15 years down the road.
3: The 19 year old white gunman who killed 10 black people at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York last year has been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility for parole. Emotions ran high at yesterday's hearing. One of the victim's impact statements stirred up a commotion in the courtroom. Take a
7: look. You're going come to our city and decide you don't like black people. Me, you don't know a damn thing about black people. We're human. We like our
5: kids to go to good schools.
0: We love our kids. We
1: never go in those neighborhoods and take people out. No,
3: the hearing was briefly postponed, then resumed. The gunman apologized to the victims and said he does not want to inspire other racist killings. The judge then told him the damage he caused is too great and that, quote, there can be no mercy for you. The gunman still faces a potential trial on federal charges where, if convicted, he could receive the death penalty. Two independent panels of FDA advisors have unanimously recommended making the nasal spray Narcan used to reverse opioid overdoses available for over-the-counter purchase. If the agency approves a non-prescription version, the life-saving treatment could become as easily available as aspirin. Many public health experts believe more deaths could be averted if more people had ready access to the spray. The FDA will make a final decision on the drug in the coming weeks. Still ahead, we'll turn to sports. And the curse of being ranked number one in college basketball strikes again, with another top team losing last night. Plus, we'll have some highlights from the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade. That's all ahead next.
5: Jen Psaki.
0: Have you ever seen the house this dysfunctional?
5: Rachel Maddow.
0: If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it?
5: Mondays, back to back.
0: Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What what do you think it means?
5: Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC
4: are heavy. Our loss has been great. Our lives have been permanently changed. But with a shared commitment to help each other and a promise to remember those we have lost, we will learn to find joy once again. That something has to be done in our society. Gun violence, is insane right now. We all have a platform. Some are small, some are high, but we all have a platform. And I hope each and every one of you use your platform to help others, so other families don't have to go what these families are going through now.
3: On a night when his Spartans were scheduled to host Minnesota, longtime Michigan State men's basketball coach Tom Izzo instead addressed the mass shooting on campus that claimed the lives of three students and has left five others in critical condition. With all games postponed, Izzo, who is perhaps the most prominent voice on campus, spoke during a candlelight vigil in East Lansing, doing his best to console the grieving community where he has been part of the basketball program for 40 years. He urged everyone with the platform to speak out against gun violence. Izzo made his plea the same day that hundreds of MSU students protested for gun reform at the Michigan Michigan Capitol building just down the road in Lansing. Let's turn now to last night's action on the court. We'll start in Knoxville, Tennessee, where Alabama's time at the top of the rankings will likely be very short-lived as the newly-minted number one Crimson Tide fell to the number 10 Volunteers, 68-59. to 59. Alabama's loss marks the eighth by number one team so far already this year, The most during a regular season in three decades. It's still only mid-February. you got a couple weeks to go. Let's turn to the NBA. The Brooklyn Nets got a boost from one of the team's newest additions. Playing just his third game since being acquired in the Kevin Durant trade, Mikhail Bridges scored a career-high 45 points last night, including 15 in a row for Brooklyn, that broke open an otherwise close game in the fourth quarter. Nets beat the Miami Heat 116-105. Celtics beat the Pistons last night. Now let's go to Kansas City. The town celebrated the Super Bowl champion Chiefs in a victory parade yesterday. Thousands of cheering fans clad in the Chiefs red and gold lined in the streets as the players rolled downtown riding in double-decker buses on their way to a rally at Union Station, where MVP quarterback Patrick Mahomes told the crowd his team will be back in the big game next season.
1: Kansas City, AFC West said we were rebuilding. I'm be honest with y'all. I don't know what rebuilding means. And our rebuilding you. We're world champs. We're world champs. I just want to let y'all know that this is just the beginning. We ain't done yet. So I'll make sure to hit y'all back next year, and I hope the crowd's the same. Appreciate y'all. Let's go, baby.
3: Bold words there from Patrick Mahomes. And it's time now for the weather and meteorologist Angie Lastman. Angie, I thought about wearing a WWF belt (laughs) myself for this hit today, but I opted against it.
2: It's so weird. So did I. It didn't go with my outfit. Yeah, though. Yeah,
3: could have pulled it off.
0: Jonathan, we've got some busy weather when it comes to uh, folks in the Midwest and stretching down to the Gulf Coast where we could see some severe storms. We already have watches and warnings up for many places. We do also have some snow that's draped from the four corners stretching into the Midwest as well. There's those alerts when it comes to the winter weather, 31 million people impact. And you can see, again, stretching into parts of Michigan and up into parts of New England as well, because that same system, it's going to bring some snow. Here's what it looks like right now as far as who's at risk for the strongest storms, 26 million people. And you can see tornadoes, hail, damaging winds all on the table for us here as we get into the afternoon hours, but specifically this area for those stronger tornadoes, EF2 or higher is possible. Make sure that you're staying updated with this here as we get into the evening hours tonight. There's the rainfall. We're going to expect up to three inches possible in some spots, snow as well. And when it comes to temperatures, the spring is going to stick with us for a little while longer today in New York, 66 degrees, Washington, D.C., Jonathan. 69 degrees
3: one of these days you will tell me what happened to winter
0: <laughs> to be to be determined
3: <laughs> so strange angie lasman thank you so very much still ahead here on way too early in her first speech since announcing a run for the white house nikki haley takes a not so subtle dig at older politicians like joe biden and yes donald trump as she calls for mandatory mental competency tests i'm sure that'll go over well we'll take a look at those remarks next Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's 5.30 a.m. on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Jonathan Lemire. Thanks for being with us. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has formally launched her 2024 bid for president. Haley officially kicked off her candidacy at an event in Charleston yesterday, stressing the theme of a new generation to lead the country. Haley called for a mandatory mental competency test for politicians older than 75, an implied digs clearly at President Joe Biden, who's 80, but it was also interpreted as a potential swipe at her as her one-time former boss, former President Donald Trump, who's
0: 76. America is not past our prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. Our best days are yet to come if we unite and fight to save our country. When I look to the future, I see America strong once more. In the America I see, the permanent politician will finally retire. And mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old.
3: The former governor and ambassador to the UN also ran through a litany of political promises, including enacting term limits for members of Congress and cracking down on undocumented immigrants. The past 40 years, the winner of South Carolina's Republican primary has gone on to win the party's presidential nomination in every single election except one. Joining us now, senior national political reporter for NBC News, Natasha Karecki. Natasha, good morning. Thanks for being here. So, Nikki Haley, first in. Uh, She certainly won't be the last uh, to challenge Donald Trump, but just assess her candidacy right now. She's got some history uh, making potential, clearly. We just noted South Carolina, an important state. What do you see as some of her greatest strengths and challenges?
0: Well, I mean, certainly she's come on very strongly with what we were just talking about. Hey, I'm new. I'm a fresh face. And putting a punctuation mark on that, she's saying... Let's, let's do competency tests. Let's look at the older folks in our party and in the other party. Um, and by doing that, she really did underscore what she is trying to do, which is, hey, I Bring, bring a new message, bring something forward looking to this party. And that is generational change. And it's also not looking backwards. Um, you know, as we noticed, she did not mention Donald Trump, her old boss in, in her speech. Um, she shied away from that. Um, she doesn't want to make her candidacy, particularly in the beginning, about Donald Trump. She wants to make it about her. And she certainly doesn't want to, you know, she is gonna be like a lot of different politicians who are running in, in in the GOP primary, which is towing that line of trying to not distance herself from Donald Trump at the same time distance herself from Donald Trump. So those are some of definitely some of the 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 advantages there. And when I talked to Republican strategists yesterday, you know, one thing they said that that Haley really did a good job of was, you know, sort of capturing what they learned from, from 2022, from the midterms, which is let's not focus on the past. Hey, we lost from looking at the past. We lost from looking at 2020 and talking about conspiracies and talking about the election. Mm-hmm. She did not go there. She is looking forward. And It also, by talking about this generational change, she was able to put a punctuation mark on herself, which is she's a 51-year-old accomplished politician who has done so much already, and she can be that younger voice. Another advantage, of course, is getting on the scene early, She's, you know, she's able to pick up some of that fundraising. She's making right. a splash, getting people in and getting them interested early.
3: And has a spotlight to herself at the moment, the The generational change talk. Interesting. Same theme struck by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders of Arkansas in her post-State of the Union rebuttals. So there seems to be at least some effort in the Republican Party uh, to do just that. Now, we know that Nikki Haley won't be the last to jump in. Other candidates coming soon. And of course, all eyes on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to see whether he uh, makes the plunge. Uh, but you've got new reporting about Donald Trump, who is still at this moment the favorite uh, to be the nominee. But yet there's something that people haven't really talked about yet, uh, about how he, would, of course, would be term limited. He can only serve four more years as president because he already served four. Talk to us about why some in the party think that could be a real challenge for his candidacy.
0: It sure can. And and, and think about what a sharp contrast that is to what Nikki Haley was saying yesterday about generational change. You know, here you have somebody, whoops, he can only serve one term. Um, And sure, there's a lot of Trump voters who are going to stay with Trump no matter what. But you have candidates already. You have Mike Pompeo bringing this up in a New Hampshire radio show saying, Hey, look at, look at what's going on here. He can only serve one term. Um, we want somebody who can be there for two, for two terms. And, and what it does is it does give, you know, some cushion to to Republicans who want to move on from Trump, but need some kind of exit ramp, need some kind of cover. And and that's not a bad one. Um, being able to say, I, I want to be able to have somebody who can serve out two terms fully and who can go up against someone who might be able to do that. Or if you're going up against a Joe Biden, be able to use that as an advantage. Hey, I can I can really take this to the long haul. I can see all of my policies through to the bitter end.
3: And certainly Biden aides think that the question of his age is not really an issue if he's standing next to Donald Trump, who's only a couple years younger. It becomes, though, much more of a contrast if he's standing next to someone who's 20, 30 years younger. So that's certainly a storyline to watch. NBC's Natasha Karecki, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We'll talk to you again soon. Still ahead, we're going to switch to business news. The markets are mostly flat ahead of three important economic reports due out later this morning. We'll get more insight on all that next with our friends at CNBC. Welcome back. Time now for business. And for that, let's bring in CNBC's Arabile Goumede, who joins us live from London. Arabile, good morning. Investors still keeping a very close eye on inflation and potential rate hikes as we look ahead to the producer price index, which is due out later this morning. Uh, Give us a preview and tell us how the market's looking in these early hours of the day.
7: Yeah, so a little hint of green is what we're seeing across that market picture, John, right? So it's been very interesting, of course, that interest rate picture is really the key focus for a lot of investors, even despite uh, the subpar, perhaps, if you want to call it that, uh, earning season that we have seen out of the United States as well. A lot of the S&P 500 companies missing a little bit of that uh, market estimate that was indeed put out. But indeed, that PPI number a little bit later today set to be the key focal area. 0.4 percent is the number expected out of that PPI number a little bit later, core PPI around 0.3%. Now, if those numbers continue to rise, of course, then it does mean that the Fed continues to have the kind of room uh, that they would need uh, to uh, continue to hike interest rates, perhaps at a little bit more than just the 25 basis points, or they might just hike and keep rates at those high levels for a little longer.
3: So we're at really Americans still shopping despite the aforementioned high prices. Give us the latest data there.
7: Yeah, I'm blaming you actually for this one, John. Like you just keep shopping for, I oh. don't you know, is it new ties? Possibly, I don't really like this. But the blue shirts kind of. Seems new. to be the case, right? Yeah. One point nine, <laughs> the one point nine percent retail figure that was initially expected was beaten completely. 3% is the retail sales figure that actually came out in the end, right? So that just means consumers continuing to buy and it's on the back of a resilient labor market, which as we saw a little bit earlier that uh, those numbers continue to climb a whole lot more, over 500,000 jobs uh, created as well. So it does give you a clear sense, strong labor market, resilient labor market, meaning consumers continue to uh, still have some money to spend, meaning that retail sales still stay propped up economy, not necessarily doing as bad as initially thought.
3: So I do have, I bought a new pair of glasses yesterday. I guess I could wear those on air one of these days just we'll take a look. Um, Arabella. it has see? been, see? It, has been yeah, it is, maybe it is my fault. Uh, Arabella. it has been, let's see, a couple days since we mentioned Elon Musk. So let's talk about him now. He says now he is, quote, aiming to find someone else to run Twitter by the end of the year. But he says before that can happen, something must be done first. What's that?
7: Yeah. So he actually wants it to be a financially stable company, right? So the financial path must look a little bit better at this point in time. And uh, hopefully then it sets up the right kind of financial trajectory for the company, a little bit more stability uh, in the form of how it actually operates as an entity. Of course, how do you find stability when you've fired half the staff really uh, of this massive, massive entity that you've just bought for 44 billion uh, just last year? And of course. Having had that uh, poll on Twitter where just around 60% of people said, yes, he should step down from uh, Twitter as CEO, he then said, well, he just needs to find somebody crazy enough to take over that spot. So, yeah, it's going to be a very tough one for him to at least do that by the end of this year. Tesla uh, investors will certainly be happy at this news.
3: I get the sense, this trend here from Elon Musk, that he says things and then Mm. Doesn't really follow through. CNBC's Arabile mm. Goumedi live from London. Yeah. A pleasure as always, my friend. Still ahead, Mike Pence vows to fight a Department of Justice subpoena surrounding the attack on the Capitol. Why the former VP says he's immune from testifying. We'll get into that next on Way Too Early. Welcome back. we got fierce new reaction from former Vice President Mike Pence, who says he plans to fight a subpoena from the special counsel investigating former President Trump's actions surrounding the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Pence calling the demand for his cooperation, quote, unprecedented and unconstitutional. Pence addressed reporters after speaking at an event in Minnesota yesterday, maintaining that he's immune from testifying because of legal protections for lawmakers. Namely, he says he was acting as president of the Senate during the January 6th Electoral College vote count, rather than as a member of the executive branch. And therefore, that would grant him legislative immunity.
0: My fight is on the separation of powers. My fight against the DOJ subpoena very simply, is on on defending uh, the prerogatives
4: that I had as president of the Senate uh, to preside over uh, the joint session of Congress on January 6th. For me, this is a moment where you have to decide where you stand, and I stand on the Constitution of the United States.
3: It's a creative argument, and Pence noted that his claim for legislative immunity was the same one the Justice Department used in 2021 in its defense of a lawsuit claiming the 2020 election was illegitimate. The DOJ succeeded in getting that lawsuit dismissed, but the judge did not cite the government's position on legislative immunity in tossing the case out. Pence was subpoenaed by special counsel Jack Smith, a source familiar with the matter, said last week. Joining us now to talk about this and so much more, political investigations reporter for The Guardian, our friend Hugo Lowell. Hugo, good morning. So let's talk about Pence first. Um, We are coming out strong against the subpoena. I think that legal experts are divided as to whether his claim has any merit. Uh, But what are you hearing from your sources about how Pence's resistance may impact the special counsel's probe?
6: Look, I think we should just say at the top of this that this is clearly Pence not wanting to testify to any investigation into January 6th, right? With the January 6th committee, he told them, executive privilege, I can't come and testify uh, to your committee. And with the Justice Department, he's saying, I can't come and testify because of you know speech and debate protections, because I'm treating myself as an officer of the Senate, and therefore I get the same protections that members of Congress do and senators do uh, when responding to executive branch subpoenas. On the surface, I think, you know there is actually a relatively strong case here because arguably a lot of the discussions he had with Trump in the lead up to January 6 about what he was going to do at the joint session of congress you know is to do with an official function uh, of congress and so i think there is a strong colorable claim and yet i think he's going to fall down eventually because the chief judge at the end of the day is going to have to decide well Is it so much of a legislative function of Congress January 6th, or was it effectively a ceremonial event? And once you look at it like that, I think his his claim to try and get out and evade a subpoena is ultimately going to fail. So, Hugo, there's a lot going on right now.
3: And later today, parts of the Fulton County Georgia grand jury report will be released uh, in the investigation into whether Trump and his allies committed any crimes while trying to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. We all, of course, remember his call to Secretary of State Raffensperger. Uh, What are we expecting today? What, What should we all anticipate learning?
6: Yeah, so we're going to get 3 sections of this report today. We're not going to get the whole thing. We're not necessarily going to see indictments today or in the in the days uh, coming because uh, the whole matter is still under seal. Uh, the DA in Thornton County, Fannie Willis, is still trying to figure out what charges she is going to bring. But she hinted in an earlier presentment uh, hearing about this uh, special grand jury report that there would be multiple defendants. And I think that is the vein uh, we should be looking at when we read the report and the parts that are going to be released today. Specifically, we're going to get the introduction. We're going to get the conclusion. But we're also going to get a section uh, where the the special grand jury concluded that several witnesses who testified before them uh, committed perjury and that they lied on the stand. And I think that's really interesting. There's not going to be any names today, but I think it gives you an indication of where the investigation is going and kind of who the potential defendants might be in the event of charges.
3: And, and Hugo, lastly and briefly, give us an expectation of timeline here. We've heard for a while now that this case in Georgia may pose even the greatest legal threat
6: to the former president. How long do we expect this to be play out? Uh, in one word, unclear, and yeah. and it's because we're really waiting for. Uh, the district attorney in Fulton County to get all of ducks in a row and effectively make sure that if she is going to recommend charges, you know, these are charges uh, that can go before a new grand jury and that can be ultimately sustained uh, if, if there's a conviction and then there's an appeal. And so, the, you know, there the are steps that she has to go through in order to make sure her cases are airtight. The last thing she wants to do uh, is to bring a, you know, or recommend a conviction and for that to fall through, right? I mean, it's such a high profile case with such high stakes, uh, including potentially for the former president himself, that really, you know, at this point, you just have to let the the, the district attorney do her work. And you'll see charges, if any, uh, at the end of that process. Yeah, such high stakes indeed. Political investigations reporter for The Guardian, Hugo Lowell, thank you. And we're going to talk to
3: you again a little later on Morning Joe. Up next here on Way Too Early, Republican plans for splashy hearings outside of the Capitol. Tell you about that. And then coming up on Morning Joe, live reporting from the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference as we approach the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Plus, we'll hear from the head of the U.S. Agency for International Development about humanitarian aid for the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Also ahead, Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin has a new plan to keep kids safe online. The Illinois Democrat will join the conversation. Morning Joe, just a few moments away. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening, evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election.
5: We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, Rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh, yeah, that that I actually care about.
3: That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.